This is the Center for Strategic and International Studies Smart Women, Smart Power podcast. This is the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast. I'm Beverly Kirk here at CSIS in Washington. Be sure to follow us on Twitter. We're at Smart Women, and I'm at Beverly Kirk. Our topic today is Sweden, its upcoming general election, and the continuing rise of populism in Europe. My guest is Heather Conley, director of the Europe program here at CSIS and a senior vice president. Heather, thank you so much for being here. As always, it's a pleasure to talk to you. Great to be here. Thank you so much. Well, first, let's set the election landscape in Sweden. Um, There's been four years of a coalition center-left government uh, that's been in charge. Talk about where we are and what are the issues in this election that's happening on September 9th. Yes. So um, in some ways, Sweden is another perfect example of sort of the political spectrum that we're seeing across Europe, where um, the political center of the country is having a hard time. Um, It is losing voter share, if you will. And the more extreme uh, ends of the political spectrum, and in Sweden that is represented by the far-right Sweden Democrat Party, it is filling that space and that void. And what's so curious about this, normally when we think about analyzing politics, we think about the economy, we think about, you know, the charisma of political leaders, you know, those typical conventional wisdom things that that's how we gauge. This is what's so strange about analyzing European elections. The Swedish economy is is very good. It's very positive. Um, you know, this this government um, has managed through crises and has done fairly well, but you could not know that by um, the tone and tenor of this election. It is very focused on anti-immigrant sentiment, for sure. Um, and what you see is the traditional uh, establishment political parties like the Social Democrats, like the Moderates, which are or the center-right uh, parties, they are struggling as the Sweden Democrats grow. Um, and they have a very young and charismatic leader. Um, they have an issue which is troubling and on the minds of many Swedish citizens. And to be honest with you, we have polls and we're watching how they're working. But you feel from talking to colleagues that have recently visited Sweden or from the from uh, talking to colleagues, and they cannot tell you where this thing is going. It is so unstable. It is so uncertain. And that's not typically how we think about analyzing elections and we watch these trends. So there's a volatility here that I can't quite capture and can tell you very confidently what we will see happen on September 10th. I read where the uh, the polls are so close that it seems like it's going to be a nail biter. Do you think we'll actually know the outcome Immediately, or? Well, we'll certainly know the outcome, um, but uh, I think this will take a very long time to actually construct a government because no party will receive a majority. So they'll have to go through this very complicated coalition process, which is which is typical for Europe. But again, I think what we've been seeing 
post-2008 financial crisis and definitely post-2015 migration crisis, the election math can no longer be put together because the traditional parties are trying and contorting themselves and bringing in a very disparate group of political parties to basically keep out the most extreme elements in their political spectrum. So what will likely happen, again, if polls are true, and I think we all have a very uh, you know humble appreciation that uh, they may not be they right. may not be right um, that we will see the the left part of the spectrum and the right part of the spectrum try to form the coalitions to get at least to a minority government probably with backing from other parties in order to not have the Sweden Democrats in government but if the Sweden Democrats let's just say right now they're polling anywhere they're the second largest party right now 19 20 percent sometimes that bops up a little bit but let's just say it's more than we assume there's sort of a secret vote that people don't feel comfortable in telling pollsters exactly how they're going to vote. It may be almost too hard for the election math to be calculated if, in fact, smaller parties don't cross the 4% threshold. And then, so it's just, we are just, this is so confusing to, to explain to some. It's just, it's not going to be known for a very long time. And that will give more oxygen, I think, to the message of the Sweden Democrats to say, you know, these old establishment parties, they haven't served you well. They can't figure it out. You really need to think about a new way forward. So we'll have to see. Could the Sweden Democrats play the role of kingmaker, or will anybody go into coalition with them? Well, it's all about the math. I don't believe the the main, the, the establishment political parties have both said they would not go into coalition with uh, the Sweden Democrats. But again, until you see what this math will be and what they have to work with. Now, if um, there is sufficient support on the center left, we could see a similar coalition going forward as the current government construct. That's the Social Democrats and, and the, the Greens. Greens. Correct. Uh, with, uh, although not in formal coalition, they get parliament support from the left party. You also have on the center-right part the, the moderate party trying to form, again, what it did before this current government, a uh, sort of combination of center-right parties. And they will try to govern if that math works. But there again, parties have to cross the threshold to be able to be into parliament. But if the math doesn't hold, what you probably will see uh, is an agreement that whilst the Sweden Democrats won't go into formal coalition, they will have to be, uh, they will be required to support whatever minority government comes forward uh, through budget issues and things to make the parliament work. And that is basically a political body required to receive the support of the Sweden Democrats for that. And then we'll have to see what that governing uh, coalition would have to agree to on the Sweden Democrats. And that would be very tough things on, uh, obviously, on immigration. It would be very, I think, tough on security and defense issues. So this is going to be a long, tortured process if the numeric results do, do not seem clear on September the 10th. Switching gears just a little bit, I want to ask you about Swexit. I read where that was actually something the Sweden Demo- Sweden's Democrats are talking about as an issue in the election. Can you enlighten us on on that? Is it a thing? So what you, I don't believe it is. Uh, I mean, clearly uh, what we're seeing is sort of the the prototypical um, 
uh, far-right party is highly anti-immigrant, Euroskeptic, anti-American, pro-Russian, sort of anti-multilateralism, pro-sovereignty. Uh, you sort of see that combination in, in various forms. I think Sweden uh, is, a, is a very active uh, member of the European Union. I don't think that issue would get much traction. Uh, Sweden uh, does not uh, use the euro, so it's a little protected from um, when the eurozone crisis flares up, uh, it has opted out of the currency. But it's a very engaged, active member of the European Union. It derives many benefits from being part of the European Union. It has a very high profile. The Swedish uh, EU commissioner is the trade commissioner, the most high profile uh, issue on the EU agenda right now. So, I mean, I think there's many, many benefits. But the, the Sweden Democrats do not have to really focus on on the EU per se. They have just been riding this surging anti-immigrant wave, and and some of the crime issues that have played uh, and plagued Sweden, and you know just the the challenge of Europe to immigrate successfully and assimilate its immigrant populations, and Sweden has been struggling with this. And those two issues, the immigration and the rise of violent crime, while may or may not be related, they've certainly been conflated in the conversation, right? Right, popular. Uh, ideologues use fear, and fear is so powerful, particularly is if you feel as if the government isn't serving your needs and your interests well, this fear factor can grow. And this is, again, putting Sweden is not isolated in these developments. It has many uh, similar characteristics to what we're seeing in Italy right now, uh, and, a, and a government that was cobbled together by two populist uh, parties that come outside the spectrum and they're trying to govern together. So this is no longer an anomaly. It's becoming a new normal in Europe, which is what is uh, concerning all of us as we're seeing country after country struggle with the same political dynamics um, and and not handling this very well. I want to delve deeper, hold that thought on the larger implications for Europe. I want to delve deeper into that in just a moment. Just one other question uh, about Sweden. Uh, and it's it, it comes to mind because the U.S. also has midterms in November. But Sweden has taken a number of proactive steps on the issue of misinformation campaigns. Uh, they've really made an effort to counter the uh, the influence campaigns of people who might want to interfere in the Swedish election. Can you talk about what they've done and? Is it something the U.S. should be paying more attention to? Sure. Um, certainly Sweden, uh, like many countries uh, in Europe, have been a victim of Russian disinformation, malign influence. Uh, certainly on the security front, uh, clearly when Russia annexed Crimea and invaded uh, eastern Ukraine, uh, it completely changed uh, Sweden's security environment. And they've had to take very dramatic steps to increase their own uh, defense, their territorial defense. And they've... Uh, joined in very close cooperation with NATO, as has Finland, to strengthen regional security. This has um, created an opening uh, for Russia to uh, put a lot of pressure on Sweden to, to not be close to NATO, uh, to not even contemplate uh, Sweden joining NATO, um, and so has interjected itself. And again, what Russia's uh, malign tactics are to exploit the weaknesses that our societies present. They don't cause them, but they amplify them. So again, the immigration debate is just made 
perfectly for Russian malign influence because what does it do? It pits one Swede against the other. It, and again, Russian influence and disinformation works both sides of the street. They want to amp up the anger, the discord, the distrust in government uh, between and among people. And you know, so you could you see Russian troll activity when when those uh, uh, articles are written about uh, increases in criminality and violence that we've seen in different parts of Sweden. Well, that's because of the immigrants. That's the one side. And, you know, you've got the government isn't doing enough. And so it just makes this even more uh, difficult. And what Sweden has done, uh, been very alert to this, again, had lots of practice in watching over the last two years what happened in the U.S., what happened in France, what happened during the Brexit referendum. Sweden has done a masterful job uh, in working on public literacy of the news and working at school-age children to say, you know, let's be a fact detective. Is the source of this article someone you can trust? Are those facts correct? Be a discerning reader. And the government, uh, through its various uh, research and intelligence agencies, have made it very clear what is happening, how it works, and to help public awareness to prevent it. I think they're a real model for what uh, to, to be to bring greater public awareness. Their intelligence agencies are on top of it. But again, this issue, because it's really domestic, it's this immigration uh, concern after the 2015 migration crisis. Again, the Russians don't have to do that much except amp up the discord that's happening in Swedish society today. Let me remind you that you're listening to the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast. I'm Beverly Kirk. We're talking about Sweden and populism in Europe with Heather Conley. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Smart Women, and I'm at Beverly Kirk. You can follow Heather's program at CSIS Europe. Heather does not tweet personally. (laughs) It's like, pause, I'm a dinosaur. (laughs) Well, I mentioned that I wanted to circle back to to the the point you made about Sweden being an example of, or just the latest example of a, of a phenomenon that's happening across Europe. Uh, as you mentioned, Italy elected a populist government back in March of this year. So what are the larger implications? Uh, you, you mentioned the collapse of the political center. Can you talk more about that and how it's happening in Europe? I think there are probably people in the U.S. that would say the same thing's happening here. Yeah, you know, that's the wonderful thing about watching Europe. It, in some ways, we can watch all of these trends from a distance. We can be very clinical, very analytical, It's a, but we're holding a mirror up to ourselves. And, and I would argue Europeans do the same thing. They're very clinical and they're very involved in American politics, they analyze it very closely, it's more comfortable than analyzing what's going on in your own, you know, Always easier home. to see the other guy. You got it. No, and I, I like to say then we have to look at one another because this the same phenomena is happening. The political center is collapsing in both Europe and the United States, and you can see that across in our primary process and towards the mid-elections. There is so much frustration that has built up on the, you know, for better word, we'll call them the establishment. So these are the political leaders that we have known and recognized for 20 plus years that have run important institutions and and, and government uh, entities. And there is such a frustration. Again, this is a decade long frustration build. It started with the financial crisis. So these were the leaders that were in charge, whether they were on the right, whether they're on the left or on the right, they brought us this and they didn't do anything about it. And then for Europe, sort of the 
the double and triple whammy. Um, you had the Russian um, uh, events in Ukraine in 2014, which threatened some parts of Europe's security very profoundly. And then you had the migration crisis, which again, it just builds on this insecurity. You know, globalization is changing how our jobs and how our children are educated and how they'll be successful. And so that that's uncertain. The social change that has come so rapidly has jarred people. So all of this change and the same leaders are doing the same thing and I'm I want them out. And and so that willingness to try anything new whether it's on the more extreme left or on the extreme right, they just want a new face. At the same time, we're having a generational change in Europe. You now have the young 40-ish leaders, whether that's Emmanuel Macron in France, President of France, Sebastian Kurz in Austria, the new chancellor. You even see that in um, in Italy, Matteo Salvini. So the late 30s, early 40s, so this is a young generation. They're very, it's very personality-based. Mm-hmm. It is them. They are the unique. They are the new and they are breaking political norms and barriers and they're going to more extremes to get more popularity and there's no answer from the political center they're on the back foot they're either defensive and they don't they're out of new ideas to be perfectly honest with you they don't have a good response to this so it's just making that center collapse more quickly it's making these extreme voices that are saying politically incorrect uh, things and they're letting their anger it's all anger it's all emotion these leaders don't have answers for this. Man, they're feeding everybody's uh, emotion and anger and frustration, and they're winning votes. So it's right now, it's a very successful formula for winning an election. It's just an unsuccessful formula for governing a country. And that's a great point. It's hard to govern when you've won from the extremes, because in governing, you have to reach a consensus. That's how it used to be. At least that's how it used to be. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we're, we're charting a new path. But you were also telling me that this um, anti-immigrant issue combined with the collapse of the political center has implications for the European Parliament. You bet. You bet. So Talk there's about that. Exactly. So there's just there's just greater space now. And so, again, outliers have become now overwhelming trends. So in 2010, when Hungary reelected uh, uh, a former prime minister, Viktor Orban, mm-hmm. in Hungary, he in some ways was the trendsetter uh, by changing the nature of government, uh, basically restricting media freedom and judicial freedom and closing society in some ways. And in return, he was going to bring greater control, control over Hungary's borders, control over who's telling Hungary what to do, whether that's Brussels or whether that's Washington. And he was very successful, and he's now been reelected for the third time. And so this outlier started to become a trend where then Poland began uh, emulating Mr. Orban's philosophy. Uh, You started to see where Mr. Orban was now reaching out to the, um, during the slow... Slovenian elections to help them think about how to ride this anti-immigrant wave, which Viktor Orban has has done so successfully. And now uh, that uh, after the Italian elections, and we have this very unorthodox Italian government that's highly uh, anti-immigrant and and right now very anti-EU, working against the EU, trying to find a common solution again that consensus so we can figure this out. Now you have uh, Matteo Salvini, the Italian Interior Minister, working more closely with Viktor. Orban and joining with others and saying we can change the nature of 
the European Parliament elections uh, with our voices, our, our emotional voices, our anti-immigrant voices. It's not it's not the EU that's changing the populism. The populism and the anti-immigrant sentiment is now starting to change and erode the European Union itself. So next May, uh, European Parliament elections, they happen every five years. Very few people pay attention to them. They are low voter turnout. It's all local issues. And usually it's a protest vote. You're mad at your government for whatever the issue it is. It's going to be immigration, which will be the the predominant issue. And all of a sudden, you could have a scenario where um, the Eurosceptic voices on the left and on the right grow so large that they begin to dominate the European Parliament, an institution that has co-decision making authority with the European Commission, very important on budget issues, very important on on regulatory directives and legal matters. So you could start seeing where this tide starts changing the European Parliament next year. And if that happened, wouldn't that kind of go against the very reason why the European Union was formed in the first place? You hit the nail on the head. Why was the European Union formed? Uh, it to make war materially impossible, to make war between France and Germany materially impossible. But you're absolutely right. It was because the the views of the founding fathers of the European Union saw where the passions of the people, which spurned fascism and nationalism, um, they could not be fully trusted. So what they wanted to do was create technocrats and institutions and bureaucracies that helped uh, manage the difficult issues of the European Union. um, but try to keep those passions subdued, to channel the passions of nationalism into good governance and, and institutional uh, freedoms, trade, freedom of, of goods, services, uh, the movement of capital and people. All of those issues now are under question. And it's sort of the, it's sort of the description of the, the boiling uh, pot of water and the frog. frog. This has just been cooking this frog slowly, slowly. And what I fear is they're going to turn around and realize the water is truly boiling and it's just too late to jump out. You mentioned the European uh, European Parliament elections coming up in May of 2019. Mm -hmm. Are there other European elections that we should be watching beyond Sweden's elections on the 9th of September? Sure. We're uh, going to be watching very closely the Bavarian state elections in Germany. And you're like, wait a minute, this is not, Germany had its uh, national election already. It took an extremely long time for that government to form, which again gives you the description of why this is just becoming more challenging because a a new party uh, has come on the scene in in Germany, very much both a product of the Eurozone crisis and Euroscepticism, as well as the immigration crisis and anti-immigrant sentiment. So the alternative for Deutschland, they're doing uh, extremely well. They are the largest uh, opposition party in the German parliament, in the Bundestag. Um, And now this is playing out in Bavaria. Um, and this is going to be a very important state election because typically uh, the Angela Merkel's, uh, her, her party, the Christian Democratic Union's sister coalition is the Bavarian party, the, the CSU. CSU, right, the Christian Socialist Union, Social Union. And uh, for the first time, uh, the Alternative for Deutschland is really giving CSU a run for its money 
in its hometown and in, in, in its homelander in, in Bavaria. And this has caused an, an huge panic. Um, and the CSU has tried to outright the AFD unsuccessfully. And now they're lower in the polls. AFD is getting higher in the polls. And that election, again, will tell us at, in the very core of Europe, in Germany, this anti-immigrant, populist, anti-center sentiment is growing. And then Germany will have four other state elections next year. I believe three of the four are in the East, uh, the former East, and that is where Alternative for Deutschland is very strong. So I think we'll continue to see this success play out, whether it's the Sweden Democrats on September the 9th or Alternative for Deutschland in the, in the Lander elections across Germany. And this tells you, it just shrinks that space for compromise, and it gets that anger uh, fueling. And again, that just could lead us into the European Parliament elections, and we'd have a bumpier uh, outcome. This is depressing, Heather. Yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> it's. It, I think we just. This is going to be. We're just in this period of time uh, that um, uh, our our that fear is is taking over confidence, and this is where the transatlantic community has always been one of of confidence. Confidence that democracy, however deeply flawed, was the best system to preserve the dignity and the rights of the individual. The capitalism, market economies is the best way. Uh, There are different ways, but we believe it, even though flawed, it's the best way. It has different, you know, social European has a different approach to market economies than the United States does. And all that confidence is gone. The financial crisis knocked out the market economy part of it, challenged it, and then our own crisis and our own self and, and our democracy and our political leaders has sort of, you know, lot, we've lost confidence in that. And now we have other actors that are demonstrating there are different ways. So whether it's President Xi's construct of, mm-hmm. uh, China. or uh, China or whether it's President Putin's managed democracy or Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban's illiberalism, there are other ideas out there that are competing with us, and we're not even in the ring to compete. We're back on our heels, we're having this crisis of confidence, and we, we it looks like we don't have confident, strong answers for the challenges of the future. But I guarantee the populists and the ideologues don't have uh, don't have solutions for those challenges either. But they do have a lot of anger, and they certainly have a lot of fear, and it's working quite well. We will leave it there, but this discussion is definitely to be continued. Heather Conley, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. And thanks to you for listening. Be sure to follow us on Twitter. I'm at Beverly Kirk. We're at Smart Women, and Heather's program is at CSIS Europe. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for listening. For more information, go to CSIS.org and subscribe to our podcasts.